passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, uh, this morning we're going to be back in the book of Philippians. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I invite you to to join me. Um, We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. And and if you have a Bible, uh, if you're turning to that, I just want to share a story with you um, as you're doing that. And it's it's about um, 10-year-old Jordan. All right, so, so 10 years old, um, growing up, I, I lived just a couple blocks away from a park. And the best thing about where this park was located is, is it was actually kind of centralized between where my house was and where a number of my friends lived. And so we would oftentimes, during the summer, we'd meet together um, after school, well, I guess not during the summer, it would be after school, but during the school year after school, or during the summer, we'd meet at this park and we'd play uh, some games of pickup basketball. And I remember one, one Sunday, or not Sunday, one, I don't know what day it was. Uh, I'm used to saying Sunday, I apologize. One day, I remember uh, that there were an odd number of us, and so not all of us could play basketball at the exact same time. And so we had a a group that were playing basketball, and then I was off on the side, uh, sitting out a game, and I was just shooting hoops on the other uh, side of the court when these two guys showed up. And they were early 20s, it looked like, and they showed up, they, they interrupted the game, and uh, they, they asked my friends about their religious beliefs. And I, I, re- I was on the other side of the court, and, and I remember I, I didn't really have much interest in being a part of that conversation, having, having that type of conversation. I grew up in church. Um, I, I was in church just about every single Sunday. Um, I, I was a regular in, in the church kids' ministry that I was a part of growing up. I was a good kid. What I wasn't was good at basketball, and so I wanted to keep going ahead and, and shooting instead of having this kind of conversation with them. But as you may imagine, one of the two guys, um, as they're having this conversation, one of the two guys comes over to the other side of the court, grabs me, and says, hey, we want you to pay attention too. And so I go over, and, and I begin to listen to what they're talking about. And I, I don't honestly remember if they were Mormon missionaries or if they were um, evangelicals who were kind of going door to door to share the gospel with others. But I do remember that the, the question that they were asking was one, it just really has, has well, it stayed with me for, for decades, and that was, do you know whether you are going to heaven or not? Do you know if you are going to heaven? And lest you think that this is the story of Jordan's conversion, because it's not, um, that took place another 10 years later, well, eight years later. Um, I, I remember 10-year-old Jordan, number one priority in that moment was to get out of that conversation. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I wanted to go back to, to playing basketball as quickly as possible. And I sensed that if I didn't answer this question in such a way that really just blew the doors off of what they were thinking that showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was a Christian, that I was going to heaven, then, then well, I was in for a long conversation. And so I began to rack my brain and, and, and begin to think, okay, how can I prove to these two guys that, that I'm the real deal, that, that I, I know my Bible well, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to answer in such a way that I know that I'm going to heaven, and, and, and that you don't have to waste your time on me. You can go ahead and go to other people because uh, your time's going to be better spent elsewhere. And that question, how are you going to heaven? Do you know if you're going to heaven? 
That's a really important one in a very simplistic sense. That's the thrust of this passage, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and maybe instead of this question kind of being in, in overly simplistic terms and, and, and somewhat unhelpful of just saying, uh, just focus only on, hey, can, can I get to heaven someday? Can, can I live there someday? But, but more broadly, what does it look like for us to stand before God someday? What is our confidence when each and every one of us will stand before God? Where are we placing our confidence is, is really maybe a, a more biblical way of, of looking at that question. And that's the heart of the matter, really. For each and every one of us, no matter how religious we are, no matter how irreligious we are, every single one of us is trying to answer that question. We're trying to answer this question of, what am I trusting in that makes me a good person? What is it that makes me a good person? Every single person who's ever lived or whoever will live places their confidence in something. And they say, this is what makes me a good person. Even if they don't believe in Jesus, even if they don't believe in God, even if they're atheists, they want or desire and, and try to place their confidence somewhere that says, I'm a good person. And this is why. And this is a question that matters more than any other question in the world. Where do we place our confidence in? Not just to make us a good person, but where do we place our confidence in when the reality that we will one day stand before God comes to play? Where is our confidence placed? Now, Paul's answer is, is profound in this passage. It's very simple, though. No matter how far from God you are or... or, or no, no matter if you've heard the message of Jesus for, for decades, this is a, a passage that is profoundly relevant for us. It's an incredible reminder. Paul says, hey, you know what my confidence is when I have to stand before God one day? Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. In fact, I hope those words, none but Jesus, nothing but Jesus, those words are etched into your memories this morning because that's Paul's focus in this passage. That's really I mean, we could, we could close this, this, our Bibles right now and be done because that's all that Paul cares about in this passage is that we would come away with a confidence placed nowhere else but in Jesus for us to stand before God one day. Of course, we're not going to do that. We're not going to close our Bibles right now. Uh, we're going to work through our, our passage here in, in a few moments, uh, and we'll see that it's a very personal one from the Apostle Paul. Paul, he begins to, to bear his own soul. He, he actually talks a lot about his conversion. Not so much the events that led to his conversion, but really the, the conversion that takes place in his heart, this, this shift in his heart. As his values change, when the, the Holy Spirit is, is working in his life and, and he comes to see who Jesus really is in his life for the first time. And so we're going to work through this passage. And I mentioned that this is a passage that's really important for us as individuals, whether we're hearing the gospel for the first time or if this is the thousandth time we've heard it, because we all need to be reminded of the gospel. We all need to be reminded of, of the importance of where we place our confidence as Christians. So let's go ahead and work our way through this passage, but before we do that, let's, let's pause and approach God in prayer. Father, as, as we consider your word this morning, we first come and we ask that you would use this text. That you would use it to reveal to us all the thousands of ways 
tens of thousands of ways. Hundreds of thousands of ways that we attempt to justify ourselves before you. God, we ask that you would help us to marvel not at our own righteous works, but that we would marvel at the king who is on the cross. That we would marvel at the only one who is able to save our souls. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3. And as we're working our way through this, uh, Paul, he begins by tying this to what he has already talked about. Um, we'll, we'll see that here in, in verse 1. He, he, he gives us this command to rejoice again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. We're going to stop there. We've seen this time and time again in the book of Philippians that Paul is focusing on joy. He's not focused on his circumstances. And remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He's not focused on his circumstances. He's focused on, on what gives him joy, and that is in the gospel. I think it was, it was C.S. Lewis who said that joy is the serious business of heaven, and that's what Paul is doing right here. He's focused on serious business, and he's focused on the business of heaven. And this is what Paul focuses on in the rest of this passage, too. He reminds us of what causes us to be filled with joy, what is ours because of Christ Jesus, that we are the true people of God, verse 2, that, that we are empowered by the Spirit, verse 2, that we are considered righteous because of Jesus, verse 9, that we attain resurrection from the dead, verse 11. All of these things are because of the gospel, no matter our circumstances in our lives, these things are true of us if we are found in Christ Jesus. To quote Paul from, from 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God are, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Now, notice how Paul qualifies this command to rejoice. He says that he is writing these same things. He's being repetitive. And some people joke and say, well, that's good because Paul's being a pastor. He's being repetitive. He's being repetitive in this charge to rejoice, but, but also in the reasons why we are able to rejoice in the gospel. Why? Well, we've already mentioned it before. It's because we are so prone to forget. And I'm not just talking about forgetfulness or, or absent-mindedness in our lives. I, I, if you ask my wife, if you ask Crystal, she'll say that I'm, I'm very forgetful. I'm, I'm very absent-minded. I, I cannot, for the life of me, find where I place my glasses or my keys or a thousand different things. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about something far worse, far more serious about how forgetful we are of the things of God. How forgetful we are of the things of highest importance. And we see that is very true in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with examples of the people of Israel forgetting what God has done for them, forgetting who God is. Psalm 78 is, is a long psalm. It's one of the longer psalms in the Bible. And it is all about how much Israel has forgotten. And because they have forgotten all of these things, judgment comes. Discipline comes for the people of Israel. And it's a call to remember what God has done for them. Psalm 78, take a look at this. Psalm 78, starting in verse 5. He established a testimony which he commanded our fathers to teach their children 
that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. As I said, the the whole psalm is is a retelling of of Israel's refusal to remember what God has done for them, of who God is, and, and it leads to their rebellion. Because they decide not to remember what God has done, they rebel against who God is. Psalm 78, verse 11. And and I'm just going to pick a couple different verses out here. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we have that same tendency in our own lives as well. All too often, we have this heart attitude that can say, well, what has God done for me lately? I know that God has done things for me in the past, but what about right now? What has God done for me lately? Martin Luther actually described another issue that faces the human heart. He says that all of us have to remind ourselves of the gospel on a daily basis because each and every one of us, our heart's default state is towards works righteousness. What may begin as this earnest desire to get to know Jesus more can quickly become dead legalism. And that's, that's true of all spiritual disciplines. It can, it can become dead legalism if it becomes divorced from the gospel. I can't tell you how many times in my life, how many times that I've seen this to be the case. And it can be Bible reading, it can be prayer, it can be memorization, it can be any sort of spiritual discipline that I begin as a way to to deepen my relationship with the Lord Jesus, to, to get to know him more. And then over time, subtly, unconsciously, it becomes another checkbox that I have to mark off each and every day. And there's no depth of a relationship there. Our hearts gravitate towards works righteousness. And so, of course, Paul begins with this reminder. Of course, Paul says, hey, I want you to remember the gospel. And and because of that, I want you to be able to rejoice no matter what your circumstances are because of the gospel. And if we don't start there, start with, with remembering the gospel, then we've lost the battle before it even begins. And so here in this first verse, we already have our first reflective question that we have to ask ourselves, will I remember to rejoice? And remember what that means, not just to rejoice no matter what, as though we're we're just going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we're going to remember the gospel. We're going to remember what God has done for us, and that will lead to rejoicing. Will you remember to rejoice? Let's pick up in verse 2. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 1, Paul gives this issue or this charge to remember the gospel, and now he transitions here to giving a warning about the largest pitfall that any of us can face in the path of spiritual growth. And and his his words are really, really pretty strong here. So let's unpack what he is saying. And and to do that, we have to kind of understand the context of of, um, the the first century church. When the the church began 2,000 years ago, uh, it was primarily a Jewish, um, it was made up of Jewish people. 
In fact, for the first 10 years or so, it was primarily just Jewish converts to Christianity. And, and because of that, it was considered by most people to just be a sect of Judaism. It was this strain of Judaism that wasn't orthodox and it was kind of veering off. And that's what most people thought of with Christianity, that it's just a form of Judaism here for the first 10 years or so. But then as time goes on and as the church spreads and, and, and spreads not just in Israel and in that area, but also spreads in Asia Minor and, and spreads into Europe, and it, it begins to take root in all these other places, it actually begins to um, be received most by Gentiles, non-Jews, and they are the ones who convert to Christianity. And this leads to a, a really big debate in the church. There's this really big debate in the church about what is it exactly or what, what, is, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? And the question centered around Gentiles. And, and this question was, well, do Gentiles have to convert to Judaism before they are able to become Christians? And this was a huge deal in the first century. In fact, there, were the, there was this large debate that was so heated and, and it was so important that Acts 15 tells us that the, the first uh, gathering of, of global Christians took place in Jerusalem. It was called the Jerusalem Council and it was, it was to discuss what exactly does it mean to follow Jesus. And there was a, there was a lot of discussion here and, and ultimately this council decided that the gospel is available to all people regardless of your background and you don't have to become a, gen, uh, you don't have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. Now why does that matter? Well, it matters because if Gentiles had to convert to Judaism before they could follow Jesus, it means that they also had to follow all of the Old Testament laws about circumcision, about what food you can and can't eat, about clean and unclean laws, all of these different types of ceremonial laws. In short, it would have made Christianity as we know it today to be basically completely unrecognizable to us. Now, after this council, many uh, of the Jews, they, they were called Judaizers, they rejected the Holy Spirit's guidance. And, and after rejecting the Holy Spirit's guidance, they, they, they decided that, that if you were going to be a real Christian, if you're actually going to follow God, then you actually still have to convert to Judaism and, and follow all of these laws that we see in the Old Testament. And this group... They, they began to, to be Paul's largest opponents, his biggest opponents, as he is spreading the gospel into Asia Minor and into Europe. As he is going out, these Judaizers would actually follow him and say, well, well, you, you know, uh, that, that, he's not quite right. You, you still have to be circumcised. You, you still have to follow these laws. You still have to, to watch what you eat. And it's that group that Paul is addressing here when he says, look out for dogs, Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is, there's some great irony here of what Paul is saying. See, these Judaizers, they call Gentiles dogs. And don't think of your pets here. Think of wild dogs. If you've ever been in a, in a third world country and wild dogs scavenging, uh, they, they eat food indiscriminately. And, and that's exactly why they would call Gentiles dogs because they would eat food indiscriminately just like dogs would. The Judaizers, they practice circumcision, but Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. And this is a term that's, that's most often re uh, reserved for those who worship uh, false gods, that, that parts of their, their religious worship would actually cause them to mutilate themselves. And these are, these are people who are going around and they're claiming to, to proclaim the way of life. And this is how you really have to follow God. And Paul says, no, you're nothing but evildoers. There's great irony here with what Paul is saying. And we might say, well, why is there such harsh language from the Apostle Paul here? 
Well, it's because they are taking away from the free grace of the gospel. They're adding extra hoops that you have to jump through. They're saying, well, you have to do this. You have to do that. Oh, and, oh don't forget that thing. You, ha- you have to do all of these things, and then you can become a real Christian. But in doing that, you're making a, a horrific, blasphemous claim. And it's this. They're essentially saying that Jesus' death isn't good enough to save you. Jesus needs some help. You need to do these things as well. I'll fast forward to today. It's not too common for those in the church to be tempted to, to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But we do see the exact same thing in our lives with religious practice today when it becomes merely perfunctory or, or when we make it paramount to our lives is, is something that we have to do rather than just an act of devotion. Works righteousness is, is so insidious. It, it, can, it can be something that we just so easily slide into and into this mindset that says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm good with God because I, I went to church today. Or, or I, I spent extra time praying today. Or I, I read my Bible for the third day in a row and today was five minutes longer than it was the last two days. And we begin to, to take our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to take our eyes onto the things that we are doing as we seek to follow him. And, and Martin Luther was so right. The default state of our hearts is works righteousness. We find our assurance not in the cross. We find our assurance in our emotions. How close do I feel to God today? We, we place our confidence in those emotions, not in the cross. We, we place our, our confidence in our spiritual disciplines or, or in how good of a person we, we are when we interact with other words, no, uh, other people. No, no wonder Paul says in, in verse 1, remember the gospel. Because if we don't do that, even this act of pursuing Jesus in order to know him and the power of his resurrection, what Paul says in verse 10 Even this very good thing can quickly become the ground upon which we base our confidence rather than what Jesus has done for us. Now, in in contrast, Paul fires off a number of marks of true faith in verse 3. That's what verse 3 is all about. He says, we are the circumcision, not them. This is a reference to Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah 4, God is talking about, hey, I don't care as much about your your circumcision in the flesh if you're also not being circumcised in your heart. If you don't have a new heart, if, if God isn't transforming your heart, then it's completely worthless to me. And Paul says, we are the circumcision, not them. He, he says that we worship, and, and remember what that word means. Is it's not just referring to the act of singing or, or of coming to, to gather together in corporate worship. It's referring to all of life, this service. He says, we serve empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and we are increasingly guided by the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. We, put, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, and I love that language. I love that language because it really hits home. Because when it comes down to it, this is what it's all about. Where are you placing your confidence in? As we said at the beginning of our time together, where are we placing our confidences as we stand before God? Not just the confidence that we, that we profess with our, our lips on Sunday morning, not, not just the, the right answer that we know from the Bible, but as we look at our lives, if someone were to observe our lives, what is the functional answer to that question day in 
day out, where do we place our confidence in each and every day? You see, in short, these two verses, they ask us to reflect over our lives. Ask this question, am I enslaved to works righteousness? Am I enslaved to works righteousness? Make no mistake, works righteousness is a form of slavery. Earning our way to God or being good enough of a person. That stuff, it makes a whole lot of promises. And it leaves us completely empty, making us slaves. Where do we place our confidence? Do we place our confidence in what we do in order to know Jesus and our obedience? Or do we place our confidence not in the flesh, but in Jesus Christ alone? Paul closes this passage with some more, some my favorite verses um, in Philippians. Building off what he has said to this point, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, he's he's warned this church of, of this mindset that says Jesus and blank. That's, that's what he's saying. You know, Jesus and blank is, is what people are saying, and, and you need to look out for that type of mindset. But, but then he pauses and he says, hey, you know, if that actually worked, if this whole works righteousness thing actually worked, I was the best at it. My pedigree was absolutely unrivaled. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's, that's a way of saying, hey, I wasn't a convert to Judaism. My parents circumcised me right when Moses told uh, Jewish parents to, to circumcise their children. He says, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most prestigious tribes. Uh, the, the, the first king of Israel is from this tribe. He says, I'm a, I'm a quintessential Israelite here. Things that are outside of my control, they, they, don't, they don't count against me. Everything about my background is good. And if your pedigree could save you, well, I'm at the front of the line. But he doesn't stop there. He, he says, if religious devotion is the key, I'm again, I'm unrivaled. He says, I, I was a Pharisee. I, I, uh, Pharisees, the, mem- the, the strictest religious group, those who took the Bible the most seriously in the first century. And Paul says, hey, hey, I was a Pharisee. And I just want to pause and, and say, I think a lot of times when we read the Gospels, when, when we see how the Pharisees are oftentimes hypocrites, we, we have a tendency to think that all Pharisees were hypocrites. And that's certainly not the case. In the first century, many, many Pharisees were, were genuine in their faith and their desire to follow and serve God. And so, so when Paul says that he is a Pharisee here, 
He, he's, he's not saying, well, I, I'm this hypocrite. He's saying, no, I, I took the Bible so seriously. I, I took my faith absolutely seriously. But he doesn't say that, just that. He says, I, I'm not just a Pharisee, but, but, but my zeal was, was completely unrivaled. I was doing all that I could in order to purify the, the, the people of Israel from this sect of Christianity. And in my observance of the law, of all that God requires in the Old Testament, no one comes close. And that's not just lip service. Paul is actually practicing what he preaches. And this is an incredible picture of Paul here. Absolutely incredible picture. This is a man who earnestly believes with with his entire heart. He's no hypocrite. He gives his entire life to Judaism. Every waking breath, every moment of Paul's life, he is devoted to following God through Judaism. And he looks at it all. And he says, you know what it got me? Nothing. Nothing. And we look at that. No, that can't be right. Look at Paul's credentials. Look at Paul's pedigree. He's got the actions. He's, he's got the heart. He's got the desire. How can we say that all of this amounted to nothing? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says that when the Spirit opens his eyes, when he finally begins to see who Jesus is, all of that devotion, all of that zeal, all of those earnest acts, all of those things that he thought was earning him favor in God's eyes, pardon pardon the language, he says, It's nothing but a pile of human excrement. This word rubbish here is is not nearly strong enough. This is a a very coarse word. It's something that's utterly useless. It's something that you throw away that you want nothing to do with. Other translations, they they say that this is garbage. Others call it dung. Others excrement. That's that's what Paul is saying, that, that everything that I have done is garbage compared to knowing Jesus. That all of Paul's efforts, all of his desires uh, to to earn his way to God, to impress God, if that's where we place our confidence, all of our zeal in our hearts in order to, to just do the right thing for God, all of those things are just a pile of garbage without Jesus. You see why Paul cares so much about where we place our confidence? Because if it's placed in the wrong place, then it it makes all of the difference in the world because it is nothing but a pile of garbage if our confidence is placed in the wrong place. There's no such thing as justification through good intentions. There's no such thing as being a good person. No such thing as God helps those who help themselves. Paul, he tried all of those things and he was really good at it. And he says, nothing 
mattered. Everything that I thought in my life was a credit in my account, a positive, I opened my eyes and it was a debit. I wasn't just left with nothing. I was left with a debt that I could not pay. What is Paul's only hope? What is our only hope? Verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's it. None but Jesus. Nothing in addition to Jesus. Nothing to impress Jesus. Nothing to to win him over. None but Jesus. That's simply what Paul is saying here. And as we we consider these these final few verses here, the the question that they ask is, is what about us? Is Jesus enough for me? Look at your life. Do what, do what Paul does here and, and, and ask if, like Paul, we, we can truly say that, that all of the things that, that I try to do to merit before God, all of my efforts to, to impress God, all of those things where I place my confidence in apart from Jesus, if, if we don't consider them garbage as a pile of excrement compared to knowing Jesus, our confidence is misplaced. Is Jesus enough for me? That's Paul's concern here. None but Jesus. How can I stand before the Lord? None but Jesus. All else is lost. For Paul, he's, he's writing this while he's imprisoned. He lost everything. And Paul joyfully said, hey, you know what? This is a good thing. I count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And so we ask ourselves, where are we placing our hope, all of our trust, all of our confidence? And there's really two, I think, two tangible applications to this. The first one is if you've never placed your trust or confidence in the Lord Jesus before, and you're not sure, you're not sure about whether you are, are clean and you can stand before God someday, this passage is clear, as clear of an invitation as you will ever find. It breaks down this illusion that we have that we can be good enough. We say, hey, you know what? God knows the heart, and, and the reality is God absolutely does know the heart, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Placing our confidence in Jesus to clean us from our filth so that we can stand before God, that's what Christians mean when they talk about faith in Jesus. That's what faith is. It's just where are we placing our confidence? Are we placing it in ourselves? Or are we placing it in what we do? Or are we saying, hey, you know what? I know that I cannot stand before God on my own, so I throw myself at the mercy of Jesus. That just like Paul in verse 9, that we would be found in him not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. And if you've never taken that step before, take this passage seriously. There's, there's not like some, some magic formula that we have to, to say these right words to, to, to get in the door. It's just a heartfelt declaration saying, hey, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. 
I count all things as lost for the sake of knowing you. If you haven't done that before, now's the time. But this passage isn't just for those who aren't sure or, or haven't professed the faith in Lord Jesus. This is a message for all those who, who are Christians, who have the, the evidence of the Spirit at work in their lives. You see, the message of the gospel, it's not just something that, that gets us in the door. It's, it's a part of our lives each and every day. It, it's the key to transformation each and every day. We've seen over and over and over again this morning that it is so easy to let works righteousness, our obedience to the gospel, become the gospel itself for ourselves. That God calls us to do things as we follow him and we take those commands and, and this desire to know him and we, we subtly shift it and say, hey, you know what, now that is what I am placing my confidence in in order to know that I can stand before God. We, we shift our confidence from the cross and we begin to, to put it on ourselves. And that is, that's why this, this passage is, is so important because it doesn't just talk about where our salvation comes from. It also talks about our daily functional salvation, where we place our assurance, our confidence each and every day, not just with our lips, but with how we live our lives, the evidence of our lives, what does it reveal about where our confidence is found? The, the key to us standing before God. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't read my Bible recently. Or, you know what? I, I have been reading my Bible quite a bit lately. And I, I, I do think that, that I'm okay before God. Neither of those is right. The answer is because of the cross of Christ. This question, where is your confidence found? It's essentially the same question I was asked when I was 10. And if you've been wondering how I responded, I, I don't really remember. It was a long time ago. I, and, and like I said, if you're expecting that it was a, the conversion moment of Jordan's life, it, it wasn't. I remember it was woefully inadequate. It was woefully focused on works righteousness of, of what I knew of what I did, that I said, this is the reason why I can stand before God. And I wish that I had a chance to, to go back in time and answer that question again, because I think I'd, I'd just reply with the heart of this passage. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. Not my works. Not my devotion to him. My, not my desire to know him, but simply what he has done for me. Let's pray. Lord, we, we confess that all too often we take our eyes off of you and place our eyes on what we are doing for you. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be people who are transformed by the gospel because we remember the gospel each and every day. That we let it permeate every fiber of our being. And that from that place, we would press on to know you more, that we would be people who 
desire to, to serve you, to, to love you wholeheartedly. But not as a way to earn our status before you. But simply because we love you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Fixed on Jesus. The only place where our hope is found. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.